0: Hello brothers and sisters, we've just done eight sessions looking at some of the uh, difficult questions that we need to ask of Islam, so we've been throwing a lot of polemics, those are challenges, asking probing questions of this whole religion that we're looking into. So what I want to do now is begin to introduce a lot more biblical theology as a response to that, as a healing balm to a lot of the ideas and a lot of the concepts that we've been covering. And I recognize that some of what we've been talking about has been uh, maybe a little bit disturbing. Some of you might find it quite hard to talk about it with a Muslim friend. Um, Some of you may have not ever heard of these ideas. Some of you may never talk about these ideas, especially in a mixed audience. Um, But as we've already said through the course, it's really important for us to actually actually look at the kinds of teaching, the kinds of theology, and um, the doctrines within Islam itself, what they present to us, in the uh, to the world in their Quran, and um, in, in their traditions. And then we need to look at that, ask questions, and uh, provide a response. So what we're going to now do in the next few sessions, we're going to um, look at uh, the biblical, very important biblical themes, and we're going to do a comparison with a lot of what we have already done. So it's going to be bringing some of what we have done in the last eight sessions uh, more into a compact theology, so a compact Islamic theology and a compact biblical response to it. And we're going to be doing more of a comparison. One thing that's always important to remember when we are talking with our Muslim friends is that we, when we ask these difficult questions of Muslims, of their theology, of Islam, uh, we never just leave them there. We never challenge an idea without giving them the response, without giving them the healing balm of the, of the truth of the Bible. And so that's what we're now going to focus on, is doing more of a biblical uh, Islamic um, uh, comparison and unpacking these ideas as we go through. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at five important areas. We're going to do a comparison. Now, when I uh, talk to Muslims, I sometimes can be a little bit uh, sort of cheeky, as we say in England. I I can sometimes couch uh, Islamic theology a certain way and biblical theology another way. Uh, I couch Islamic theology in a way that's a little bit negative and biblical theology in a way that's a bit positive. You might think, well, isn't that a bit biased? Actually, the, way, the reason I do this is to, to show very clearly when I, as a Christian person, approach this book, when I, as a Christian person, approach their sunnah, their uh, example of Muhammad, their ideas, I, I, I approach it in, and I, I start to uh, talk about it and I explain it in a way that, to me, this is the summary of what I think about their faith as a Christian analyzing their ideas, as a Christian analyzing their theology. And that to me always comes out very negative. Because, as a Christian looking at their book, I think that what, how this views man and woman is a very, very negative picture of man and woman. and when I do a comparison to this book, the Bible, I see a very wholesome and a very healing picture of man and woman, uh, because of course, the whole breakdown of relationship between man and woman between God and humans um, is described very clearly in this book. And I believe this book, the Bible, gives answers um, to the problems of the world and the tensions between man and woman in society, whilst this book, the Quran, uh, seems to almost encourage the breakdown of relationship, encourage division, encourage problems between man and woman. And I think I hope that will become more clear as we go through uh, this paper that I want to present to you in the, ne- in the next couple of sessions. Now, what I'm going to present to you is something that I wrote up many years ago when I did a debate with a lady called Tabassam. Tabassam um, is an Asian uh, Muslim who lives in Canada. She is a doctor. She's a highly intelligent woman. And, uh, or she was doing her doctorate when I met her. And uh, we did a debate on marriage in Islam and marriage in, in Christianity. A fr- or Someone I know really only through the internet, I've never met her, Mary Jo Sharp, had done a debate with Tabassum De just a week earlier. And this was quite an important uh, turn of events because there's very, very rarely has there been any formal public debates between a Christian woman and a Muslim woman. In fact, we find it very hard to find Muslim women to do public debates with us. Lots of Muslim missionaries in London, male Muslim missionaries in London, will take um, all the girls on my team on all the time. But rarely do we find find Muslim women doing that, although there's some that I think they are training. It would be good for more Christian women who are who are, are, have done their investigation, have done their homework, and that is key, folks. If you want to debate for God, for the one true God that's shown in the Bible, you do need to do your homework. And what we're finding across the Muslim world, and especially in places like Asia, but also in the United Kingdom and in places like Canada, America, and so on, you will find that Muslims will go to, say, a church, they'll go to a pastor of a local church, and Muslims who have done their homework, they they have investigated the Bible, often in a way to try find little uh, pieces of information that are taken out of context and and a way to uh, make the Bible look bad. So they they rarely take a verse in the Bible and see it in its context. And they will take uh, all these little bits of verses in the Bible and come up with a very strange theology that you and I who are biblically literate would not even understand or even recognize. And they'll come armed with all this homework and they know their Quran and they know the saints of Muhammad and they know their history and they have been trained in the mosque and they would go to a church and they would challenge the Christian, the Christians in the church, to a formal debate. And of course Christians, being evangelistic on the whole, are wanting to share their faith with Muslims, will often say yes. And so you'll find pastors of churches around the the world, you'll find uh, uh, men and women who will say yes to these debates, and they go into these debates with Muslims, and then to the Muslim mind, the, the Muslim debater always wins. And the Christian debater, whilst Christians are excited that the Christian was able to share the gospel. Um, often in the Muslim mind fails. And the reason for this is because the Christian, whilst they're evangelical, even a pastor may know his scriptures, a pastor or people of the church have often not learnt how to communicate and articulate their faith for the Muslim mind. So what I want to do is actually go through the opening statement that I did for this debate. And I had dear colleagues in the United Kingdom help me formulate this opening statement. I have a good team back in London. Um, our team leader is Jay Smith, who has um, taught on on this on, on the courses like this. And he is a debater who's probably done more debates with Muslims than any other Christian I know, at least in the Western, in the Western world, in the Northern Hemisphere. And so what I want to do is just introduce to you some um, of of the way that we articulated the biblical themes that are important to us and what we think are important for the world to know and then do a comparison with, with the Quranic ideas, much of which we have looked at already in the first eight sessions. So I'm hoping this will just be a helpful way to begin to... Take the the ideas that we looked at in the last few sessions and begin to weave it into a package that we can now use and always do in a comparison uh, with the biblical ideas um, just to show, again, the beauty of the Bible versus the troubling verses of the Quran. And then in further sessions, we'll actually look at some of those verses in the Bible that Muslim polemicists always bring up. Often it's in the Old Testament, a couple in the New Testament, and we will in, in later sessions look at uh, um, how to respond to the way Muslims deal with our scriptures and, and the particular scenarios they pull out of our scriptures and then try challenge it as a way to show a denigration of woman and an ennoblement of man and, and, and so on. And we'll give a response to what the Muslims raise about our own texts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you uh, my paper and then um, as a way or or, or an example of how to um, uh, look at our um, different theologies and do a comparison uh, and a way of introducing the gospel um, that works uh, with a Muslim mind. So the first thing to remember, it is always, always very important to start, well, I think it's important, often uh, when you're doing, say, a biblical study or an Islamic study, uh, you can start with the Quran, or you can start with the Bible, I'm going to start with the Bible today, and to make very clear with a Muslim friend, say you're doing a Bible study with them or you're in a debate, to make it very clear what the biblical position is. Now, I, I, I take note that there are many of us from many different denominations. There are some things I might say now that some of you from some denominations may, might not quite sign up to. You need to be able to support your position in how you are convicted and how God has led you and convicted. But what I want to do is introduce overall biblical themes that I think most Christians would be able to sign up to at least use in some, some capacity. Right here in this room in the studio, as we are filming, we have uh, four or two brothers, two sisters, and we 're from four different denominations we 're Pentecostal, one is Pentecostal, one is a Methodist, one is brethren, and one is baptist and we 've been having a great time of fellowship, and we are united together um, in wanting to expose what the religion of Islam um, teaches, as well as introduce um, uh, the beauty of the Bible for our our Muslim friends. And we're united in that. And I think all of us in this room, regardless of the denomination we come from, will be able to use some of what I'm going to teach now, which has been put together by an interdenominational and international team back in London. So I hope it will be helpful to you as we go through this now. So I'm going to start with the biblical view of marriage. And when I I say to a Muslim friend, the biblical view of marriage is all ordained by God. And then I tend to be a little bit cheeky and I say, I believe the Quran is, ordained, the, the Quranic view of marriage is typical of, of, of a, an institution or an idea that was made up by man. So when I compare the Bible and the Quran, I see that the Bible has a lot more divine themes running through it. So that When it talks about marriage, for example, and even women and men in, his, in Christianity or in the world it seems to, bring, seem to show a much more of a spiritual theological understanding of man and woman, and specifically of marriage, which we're going to really unpack in a lot of detail. And marriage is important to people all over the world, or in, in the Western world, marriage might be, th- be thrown out a little bit more, And, of course, the secular world thinks just living together is okay, but still it's couples. It's people coming together and living together. Now, the biblical idea is that we step one further and we marry one another to honor God and to honor the, the laws of our land. But I say that this book, this view of marriage is far more spiritual and far more theological. But this book, the Quran, seems to give us a far more man-made view and very carnal view of marriage. And I, I put that to my Muslim friend. And of course, I wait for their response. Because I found in sometimes throwing a bit of a spanner in the works, as we say in English, or, or a little bit of a, of, a, of a probing idea or question, the Muslim mind will wake up and respond to you because they either need to defend that, or if they reject it, they need to show you why you were wrong. So if I am wrong, that this is not a, a, a divinely ordained uh, this, this book does not present divinely ordained ideas on marriage. They need to prove to me why this is why this is or has divine origin. They need to prove me wrong, and so I, I try to sometimes throw in a difficult idea or probing question or idea so that they will respond to me, and then we get into a conversation and we get into a deep conversation. So this has corruptions and the deviations of man when it looks at marriage. And this has divine origins, deeply theological, deeply spiritual. Now, the next thing that I find is very important to address uh, when we address Muslims is to always, and we've talked about this a little bit. And again, my team leader back in in London, uh, and you may have watched him over the Internet. He's all over the Internet, the debater, um, Jay Smith. And he will always say, whenever you approach Islamic and Christian theology, you always go back to the book, or the books and the man. So for the Muslim, you go back to the Quran. For the for the Christian, you go back to the Bible. The book and the man. The book and the man. And he always makes the joke. And um, our two brothers in the studio noticed this yesterday, where they were saying, "How Beth, I noticed that your your Bible is bigger than your Quran." And I said, "I think Jay Smith would kick me off the team if my if my Bible was smaller than my Quran." As a joke. So we always have our Quran smaller. You don't have to do that. It's just a funny little thing, quickie thing we do um, at the Founder Center of Apologetics back in London. Nevertheless, we go back to um, our book. This is my book that I follow and the Muslims go back to their book, the Quran. And then we go back uh, as a Christian, back to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and how to know how to live today. And for Muslims, they go back to Muhammad. And you always start there because Muslims can make claim after claim after claim. Christians can make claim after claim after claim. But hopefully our Claims are more grounded on this book. Muslims make claim after claim, and very rarely are they grounded on this book, especially when they are romanticized and the theologies and doctrines have been made to be more appealing to those who are more, what they consider more progressive and so on. So we always check with their book. Whenever a Muslim makes a claim, I always go back to their book. It means I have to do some homework. It means I need to be familiar with this book. And brothers and sisters, there are many Christians around this world who say they do not need to read the Koran to to minister to Muslims. Can I say... If you're going to minister to Muslims, if you're going to understand a theology that takes up a quarter of the world's population or that has influenced a quarter of the world's population, you do need to be familiar with this book because most Muslims have not read it, but if you've read it, you then have an authority that even your Muslim friend does not have. So I really encourage you to read this book. If you struggle with it, read it with a friend. Pray before you read it. And then whenever you've read it, make sure you go back to this as the healing balm. Go back to the Bible to be the healing balm and also to keep you grounded because there have been some Christians who are not biblically literate who have delved into the Quran and have been seduced by the teachings of the Quran because this book appeals to, um, to, to human carnal desires. And so you have to stand your ground, you have to pray and you need to be careful, but do read it. We have nothing to fear. Even if this has spiritual power, we have the power that raised Christ from the dead within us, says the New Testament. We have nothing to fear about this book because we have the Holy Spirit within us which protects us. But that doesn't mean we're naive. It means that we need to be biblically literate. Then we also need to become Quranically literate to be good ambassadors for Christ to the Muslim world. Hence why we're even teaching these courses so people can have a deeper understanding of the Quran, and then the Bible in response to it. So we go back to the man in the book. Um, so we start with this is divinely ordained views on marriage and on man and woman. This is man-made views on on marriage and man-made woman. We go back to the, our books. We go back to our man. Now, one of the really helpful verses to use when you're talking with Muslims is to start quoting from their scriptures. And that's not because you think this has any divine authority. That's not because you think that this is a book that um, has any revelation that's true in it. Um, This book, the Quran, has not borrowed from the Bible, just to make that clear. This book, the Quran, and where all the evidence is pointing to is that it has borrowed from heretical Christians, so not mainstream Christians, and not the Bible. It is borrowed from heretical Christian sources and it has borrowed from Jewish uh, apocryphal sources or paraphrases um, that the Jews would use and stories of their prophets, of the Jewish prophets, even the Old Testament prophets, but not stories straight from the Bible. So they would take a story of Abraham or take a story of Solomon and, uh, or, or Joseph and they would make a story out of it, but it's not the biblical story. And those stories, those Extra biblical stories have found their way into the Quran. So the Bible has not found its way into the Quran. Heretical Christian and also these other stories, Jewish stories, have found their way into the Quran. We also know a lot of pagan themes have found their way, most likely from areas of Jordan, Petra, Jordan, the Nabataean kingdom. Those ideas have also found their way into the Quran. Just very important to remember that. Still, we use it to actually expose Islamic theology. That's why I use the Quran, not to give it authority, and I make sure my Muslim friends know that. I use it so that I can expose their, their, their theology, and because most of them don't even know what this book actually says. So take Surah 53, verse 2. It says, Muhammad has neither gone astray, nor has he erred. He does not speak of his own accord. And there's many other verses that say Muhammad has never erred. Muhammad has never made a mistake. He's never gone astray. We've looked in earlier, previous sessions where we talked about how you must obey Allah and you must obey Muhammad. You obey Muhammad, you obey Allah. The two go hand in hand, the two go together. Muhammad is on a, almost on a pedestal, on a divine pedestal, almost equated with God. Another idea that you can bring out with your Muslim friends. So I often start with Muhammad. Go back to the life of Muhammad. So if a Muslim friend throws out all of the traditions and the biography and his sayings, you then have to say, okay, you've thrown out all your, your histories, you've thrown out all of your traditions, the sayings of Muhammad, his biography. So when the Quran says that Muhammad is the, uh, uh, an example for us today, that he's not erred, he's not made a mistake, that you have to obey him as much as you obey Allah, which is very suspect for the Christian... Where do you go to to know how to obey Muhammad? This is not his book, you see, according to Muslims. This is just, this is the book apparently Muslims believe came down from, from Allah, from heaven, Tanzil, they say, handed down. So where do you go to to find about Muhammad. It makes Islamic theology a little difficult. It means that Muslims can't follow their book if they throw out all of their traditions because how on earth do you know how to follow Muhammad? How do you know how to obey him? You have to go to those traditions to know how to obey Muhammad. So again, just help Muslims um, point that out with Muslim friends who may respond to you and, and throw out all their traditions. We're going to look at some traditions as we go through this paper today. Now, one of the most important things to do when you introduce biblical themes to a Muslim and when a Muslim is talking to you, and we're going to unpack this more in, in, in the next few sessions as well, um, of, of understanding what is behind a Muslim's question. What is a Mus- why is a Muslim asking you a question? Why, why do they believe certain things about Christianity? Uh, what's behind their questions? What are they doing to our faith that we don't even recognize sometimes when they come up with, a, with an idea or with a polemic, with a question? So when you are, are, are introducing this to Muslims, this is both important for Christians to remember this, but it's also helpful to point out to Muslims. So when, we, when a Muslim comes up with a question or with a verse that they want to challenge, or when you're just introducing material, you always need to say to your Muslim friend, first of all, what is the whole context of, of, the, of the passage of scripture they've raised? So for example, my Muslim friends will always say to me, uh, Betty, the Bible says that God is not a man full stop. And they stop right there. This is a a verse taken from the Old Testament. God is not a man, full stop. And I say, uh, hang on a minute, have you read the rest of that verse? The verse says, God is not a man that he should lie. The meaning of that verse is God does not lie like human beings. When it uses the word man there, it's human beings is is the idea, even though it's using a male term in the English translations. We talked about that when it comes to the Quran in a previous session. Um, so God is not a human being that he should lie. But what Muslims do, they only quote the first half of the verse. Folks, every time a Muslim quotes from the Bible, you can almost guarantee they've only quoted part of the verse. Or even if they quoted a whole verse, they've taken it completely out of context. And they are imposing onto the meaning of it something that the text doesn't even mean. And usually all you have to do is just read the verses around it. Make sure you always check a verse that they have, have quoted. And this is what's worse. Many of you will have come across quotes and um, de- uh, video debates by Zakir Naik, who comes out of Asia, um, of uh, Ahmad Didat, who has died now, but he comes out of South Africa. Um, Shabi Ali uh, in, from Toronto and these are they they're Asian and uh, Muslims of Asian origin and uh, they are some of the best debaters or were some of the best debaters in the world and they've debated more Christians probably more than any other Muslim uh, around and they are known to take a verse out of context and just uh, pummel the Muslim the Christian that they are talking with um, uh, how how a a false idea of what the verse means. They've misquoted. They have taken it out of context. They have not read the whole verse. And even if they might know, and they probably do, what the whole passage of Scripture teaches, they don't let on what the whole passage of Scripture teaches as a way to try manipulate um, the biblical text uh, to make it look negative, to make it look bad. So always, always, always check a quote. And don't just do that with the Bible. Do that with the Quran. Whenever a Muslim quotes a passage of scripture in the Quran or their scriptures in the Quran, you must, must, must double check it. Re- make sure you've read the whole quote. If you can read the Arabic, even better. Make sure you've read the surrounding verses. Now, remember when it comes to remember when it comes to the Quran, that uh, that it doesn't have the context that the Bible has. The Bible has. Um, huge context. You can sometimes go to chapters way before to understand what it's saying. Sometimes when they bring out a verse in the Bible, especially when it comes to men and women, especially in the Old Testament, there's certain scenarios in the Old Testament that can be troubling if you don't understand what happened a few chapters earlier. In fact, what happened in a book earlier. So whenever they pull out a verse on man and woman, always check the chapters before, understand the themes of those books, understand the context of the time. In the Quran, they don't have that. Yet, in some passages of the Quran, you can come up with some context. And you will find they will bring out one little phrase from the Quran, and you need to, again, look at the whole verse or the verses around it, even though it hasn't quite got the context our our Bible does, um, to sometimes make a clearer picture of what the Quran teaches. Now you might think, well, Betty, you've not said much about man and woman in this session. No, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, to, to build, a, put a foundation in place of the way we approach our two scriptures. When we are debating and discussing these ideas, we need to be aware and, and we need to be very, uh, uh, very familiar of how to interpret our scriptures and how to also honestly deal with their scriptures. One thing we as Christians struggle with is when a person manipulates our scriptures for their own agenda. We must be careful not to manipulate their Quran to fit our own agenda as well. We must be honestly grapple with their Quran. There's a lot of Christians who impose biblical themes onto this that are not there. We must make sure we deal with this honestly as we ask Muslim friends to deal with our scriptures honestly. And that's why when I said at the beginning, when I start to talk about the biblical theology of marriage and of man and woman in this book, my Bible, it is a very positive idea because it's divinely ordained, because it comes from a God of love, a God of eternal love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then a God who made his creation, his human beings in his image who are loving and relational, which marriage is the best example of the love that God has for us. That's the whole, one of the reasons for marriage. It is a gift for a man and woman on earth, it is also for us to be able to multiply, but it is also to show the beauty of God's loving relationship with us. In Islam, when I I honestly deal with their scriptures, I do not see a loving relationship between a man and woman. I do not see a view of marriage that shows that God uh, loves us or is a picture of God loving us. There's nothing in this Quran that shows a a God of eternal love when it talks about marriage and man and woman and how men and women interact with each other. So I come out with a very negative view of of what this book teaches when it comes to, to marriage. So, as a little wrap-up, we're going to do a comparison f- with a few, uh, uh, in a, uh, five different comparisons between biblical marriage and Islamic marriage. And the areas we're going to compare is, we're going to look at Islamic, uh, Islamic, mon- uh, Islamic polygamy, so it, actually Islamic unfaithfulness, really, versus uh, biblical monogamy, biblical faithfulness. So, biblical faithfulness, islamic unfaithfulness biblical monogamy and islamic polygamy so one husband one wife One husband, four wives, or even more, because there's only four wives um, at one time. So you can divorce a wife and then just take on another one. Or you can have four wives, and certainly what the scriptures, uh, the Islamic um, texts uh, imply, and what Muhammad's example implies, is that uh, he had his four wives, or actually Muhammad had many, but his companions maybe had four, and then they would have their concubines and their sex slaves on the side. So it seems to be even more women than just the four. But you're married, the women you marry are four. Of course, Muhammad disobeyed Surah 4.3, which says you can only have four. So we're going to look at monogamy versus polygamy. We're going to look at biblical intimacy versus Islamic alienation between husband and wife in, in, in Islam. We're going to look at biblical faithfulness, Islamic unfaithfulness. We're going to look at biblical respect between a man and a woman and how that looks like. We're going to uh, look at the understanding of submission in, in the context of a loving relationship. And we're going to look at blind obedience of a woman to a man in the Quran. We're going to reference uh, Muhammad's example. And then we're going to look at biblical paradise. Um, we have looked at that a little, bit, a, a little bit, but we need to just wrap it up in a nice package, ending always with biblical paradise and always exposing what is in the Islamic paradise. Just do a comparison in those five areas when it comes to man and woman. And it's such a helpful comparison. And it will help you to have a clear picture, a clear line of how to communicate your faith with a Muslim and how to ask probing questions for for the Islamic mind to understand the difficulties that this text has when it comes to to women. So always give them the the antidote that you find in the Bible whenever you challenge this book.